Father, guide us and direct us in the moments we have together. We're thankful that we could be together to sing and fellowship and enjoy each other's company, but most of all, enjoy you. And Lord, a sense of your presence is what we need more than anything else. So help me as I bring the word of God, quicken my heart and mind to say those things that will edify, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abraham in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now see, Abraham was a man of faith, but he had feet of clay just like the rest of us. And he struggled with the timing of God's promise, which, by the way, we're going to talk about. The timing of God's promise. And uh, verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven. And tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, you can make an argument for either Genesis 22 being the sentinel moment in Abraham, Abraham's life where he was willing to offer up Isaac, or this right here where he believed God for the impossible. And we go to verse 7, and he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And lo, in horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them, 400 years. Now, that's a reference to their 400 years in Egypt. And, and also that nation, verse 14, whom they shall serve, will I judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. And thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Now, I want you to watch carefully verse 16. But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I want to call your special attention to that last phrase, that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. As God explains to Abraham what he's going to do with his nation that hasn't even really started other than there's him and Sarah. But there's going to be Isaac and Jacob and all of his offspring and so forth in time to come. 
And he's talking prophetically. And he's talking about the 400 years in bondage to Egypt. And he says, in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again. Why the fourth generation? Why 400 years? Now, when you stop and think about it, it, it wasn't pleasant for the Jews to be there, especially toward the end. The bondage got worse and worse and worse. When they first came in, Joseph was uh, second to Pharaoh, and they were favored. But that eroded over a 400-year period. And they would reach a point where they were praying, they were crying out to God, they were begging because of the bondage, and all the things that were going on, and the oppression, living under that regime. And yet God said, it's not going to be until the fourth generation. Why? Look at the postscript. Look at it again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Folks, I guarantee you that wasn't the only reason. That wasn't the only reason, but it was the reason he gave Abraham. How many of you believe that God could have more than one reason for delaying an answer to prayer? Sure. He could have many reasons. But in this particular case, he simplifies it for Abraham and gives him that particular reason. It goes to show that God is working out things that had to be worked out in order for him to put the nation of Israel in the land that the Amorites currently inhabited. When you read your Old Testament thoroughly, you find out that the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Mosquitoites, <laughs> all those ites reached a place where their sin and the vileness of their culture and their religion and, and, and all of this reached a tipping point. Now, I can't suggest any formula for that tipping point, but God in his mercy would allow them to go to a certain point before he said, here's, here's what he said, Here, here's what he said. It wasn't very flattering to Israel. In fact, he reminded them several times when they were involved in idolatry, uh, don't think you got the land because you're so great. He said, the land vomited out its inhabitants. The land was sick of them. The land puked them out. And if you study historically what these people were involved with, you can understand why God put it that way. And we'll get to the implications with our country in just a moment, but, but those things had to get to that place because God has standards, God has principles. God has ways of working, and many times we don't understand it. Do you ever have your children, and, and they're real little, and, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that, and you say no, and they go, why? And you gave them that standard parent answer, because I said so. 
And it wasn't that you couldn't have explained it to them. It's just that they probably couldn't have got it. It probably wouldn't have changed their mind. And so he just didn't bother. I think there's a lot of things. Aren't we called children of God? I don't ever recall the phrase anywhere from Genesis to Revelation where God calls us the adults of God. We're children. Uh, you can be in your 60s, you can be in your 70s, 50s, 40s, 30s. Hey, I'm all grown up. I'm in my 20s. I got my own car, my own apartment, and uh, got married, and we got one kid and all this. And God says, you're one of my children. I'm 80 years old. I've been saved 60 years. I've done all of these things. I'm a great, great, great grandparent. I got all these grandkids and everything. God says, you're a child of God. So he gives Abraham one reason. And here these Jews toward the end of their bondage are crying out to God, crying out to God, crying out to God. And God's delaying the answer because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet what? Full. I think of the nation of Israel right now. I'm sure there are Orthodox Jews in Israel. Some who have relocated there for the very purpose of Zionism and the idea of the Messiah coming and seeing the revival of their nation. And many of them wonder what's holding up the show. They want to see their Messiah. The irony of it is they killed their Messiah 2,000 years ago. But we know he's coming back. We know he's going to restore the nation. <coughs> and even Orthodox Jews that reject the New Testament, have enough in the Old Testament to understand that. And so many of them think, what's he waiting for? Well, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You see, I'm going to use that phrase over and over and over again. And I'm not saying that that's specifically. The Amorites are, are, are a people whose whose lineage is barely even traceable anymore, even by the archaeologists. But there are things going on in nations. There's things going on in your life and mine and believers all around the world where we're saying, Lord, what's the hold up? And the proverbial answer is more of an exact answer. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God's doing something over here that we know nothing about. And guess what we need to do? I, I love that song. I, I, I saw the theme in that song. Living by what? Faith. I don't know about tomorrow, okay? I don't know about the future. But I know who holds the future. And we can sing that in broad terms. But it gets a little more difficult when it gets specific. I remember uh, watching the, the film uh, Defiance. And as far as I know, it was fairly historically accurate to the Belarusian Jews that literally hid in the forest during the Second World War from the Nazis and the concentration camps. And, and some of them survived the entire war and, and lasted till the end. And and avoided the fate of so many Jews in Europe. But I remember a part in that, in that movie that was very chilling. They were, 
they were reciting a prayer, an almost canned prayer, that, that was uh, a sort of a chronicling of uh, the history of the nation and the things they had suffered. And it was punctuated every so often, and they would say it in unison. There were about six or eight men uh, saying this prayer together with the rabbi standing there, and they would, they would punctuate it with, choose another people. I mean, it was chilling. And then they'd go on and on, and, and we went through this, and we went through that, and, we went th- and then they'd say, and choose another people. What were they saying? We don't want to be the chosen people anymore. You know what they forgot? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You know what we tend to forget? The same thing. How about this one? The rapture. We all want the rapture to come. How come Jesus didn't come yesterday and take me home? Aren't you glad he didn't answer the other guy's prayer the day before you got saved? We always talk about the last soul getting saved before the Lord comes back and takes us home. That's good preaching. I don't know if it's exactly true, exactly how it's going to work, or exactly what's going to trigger God. I look at back to Israel. You say, how does God spell watch? Not T-I-M-E-X, not Timex. He spells it I-S-R-A-E-L, Israel. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Well, he might have some things to get settled with Israel and get things prepared so that when we're gone, he's ready to fulfill some promises with them. You see, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I wonder about the iniquity of the United States. I hear some Christians, I, I don't understand what Bible they're reading. I really don't. But they look at the debauchery and the moral decline of our country, and I don't know about you, but it grieves me. And I know ultimately that the Great Commission isn't saving America. I get it. It's bringing the gospel to the whole world. I get that. But I love my country. And, and, and I love the vestiges of, of what it once was. And I still pray God will bring revival. But I'll hear some of these people, and you know, they'll be talking about, you know, some, some, some thing that went haywire in our country morally or spiritually, and they'll go, bring it on. Like, if America could go down the flusher fast enough, we'll, we'll make Jesus come back faster. <laughs> Chapter and verse. Um, I'll settle for penumbra emanations from an entire book if you can't find a chapter and verse. I look at my country, and I wonder. I, I think of some things that God might see that he might extend his mercy toward us. I think of missions, dollars going out of this country. I think of missionaries going out of this country arguably the most anywhere in the world. Especially under the, under the former administration. My goodness, I think if President Trump would have got another term, um, he'd have moved the capital of the United States to Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, you say what you want about the guy being secular. 
I mean, he, he was bold in his approach toward being friendly to Israel. I mean, he didn't care how many Arab nations screamed and yelled and how many times the United Nations got together and, and cursed us out and cursed him out. He just went ahead and did it. And you know, I look at Matthew 25 and I see sheep nations and goat nations and I, I just hope and pray maybe somehow we'll be one of the sheep nations. And maybe God will look at our country and, and, and spare us the judgment we deserve. Because we do deserve it. Folks, I believe we are the biggest exporters of perversion anywhere in the world. For decades, Hollywood has been giving us a black eye with the whole world. People think around the world and other nations think that the majority of Americans are the nonsense they see Hollywood spewing out. Now to make it worse with all this homosexuality and LBGTQ, XYZ, whatever in the world, alphabet soup, and it gets worse every year, throw in trans now, foreign relations and, 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 and diplomacy with other nations, we go to third world countries, offer them scads of money with, with, with the, uh, uh, the hook in it that you got to do all this perverted stuff too. I mean, we've become perversion pushers. And when I say we, I mean our, our, some of the uh, people in government. You understand what I'm saying. And I look at that and, and, I, and I wonder. I, I know that the, the blood of abortion cries out to God. And I look at our country. And we get so focused on an election or something some politician says, or something uh, the media says about someone or whatever, and, you know, it could, it could have nothing to do with any of that, how things pan out in the end. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It could have something to do with something that's going on in the Ukraine and in Russia right now. You know, prophetically... I don't find the United States. I've dug around in the major prophets and minor prophets, but you find Russia, the bear, amen? Who knows? Who knows? You know what? I think God sees a lot more than we see. Let's bring it home. How about that job opportunity that you've been praying about? The dream job, the dream job. Isn't it funny how a lot of dream jobs turn into nightmares? <laughs> I'll tell you why that is, because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam made sure that work became a dirty four-letter word. Well, I want to do the thing that I love to do. Great way to ruin a hobby. <laughs> the old school way was hard work and patience. They talk about the millennials coming up being entitled. A feeling of entitlement. Got to have it now. I don't know about all that. But I think we can get impatient about that. Say, how come that job hasn't showed up yet? Well, maybe it's because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. 
There's something going on you can't see. Between 1968 and 1974, at Stanford University, they took 654-year-olds who were offered a selection of marshmallows, cookies, and pretzels. After they chose one, they were told they could either eat it immediately or wait 15 minutes and get another one. The researcher giving the kids this choice then left the room. The kids tried to wait. Some covered their eyes with their hands or turned around so they couldn't see the tray. <laughs> Most of the kids lasted less than three minutes on average. But 30% waited 15 minutes for the researcher to come back and give them their second marshmallow. You know what they found out about those 30%? Over the years, it turned out that those kids who knew how to delay gratification at age four tended toward higher SAT scores and social competence, and as a group, they were better at planning and handling stress. So I have a question for you this morning. Are you a one marshmallow person? <laughs> or are you a two marshmallow person? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about ministry? Ministry. You know what I always encourage everybody to do when it comes to ministry? Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. Just serve the Lord now. It's not about geography. It's not about how you put food on the table. God will decide all that for you later on down the road. Bloom where you're planted. You know what? When David was out there tending his father's sheep, and by the way, being a shepherd was not a prestigious job. Okay? Hot in the summer, cold in the winter, out there with the sheep, freezing, sweating, drought, thirst, hunger, fighting off wild animals, and dealing with dumb sheep. <laughs> Everything I've read about and heard about sheep is they're not smart. I mean, I've, I've raised cattle, and, and, and I mean, man, this one I got now, we, we just popped one the other day, and so I, I got one black Angus out there, and honestly, I look at him sometimes, and I think, you are so stupid, how do you breathe? I, I, you know, I got tired of, and I'm going to digress here for a second, but hopefully I can get back to where I was going. Sheep, David, remind me, okay? I was so tired of throwing them hay, and then had, I, there was one I had. I had this white-faced Hereford, and I don't know, maybe it's because I left his horns on him or something. He got so weird, but I threw him a big flake of hay, First thing he'd do is get down on his front legs with his, his elbows and roll around in it. Then he'd pee in it. Then he'd poop in it. And then he'd stand there and look at me like, feed me. <laughs> so I finally set up one of those. You ever see one of those green grates with the bars on an angle? And they got to stick their head through. And then I put a trough there. And I thought, surely this is foolproof. Well, this black Angus will stick his head in there. And he'll just push all the hay out of the trough where he can't get to it and then he'll push the trough over where he couldn't even get to the trough if he wanted to step back and look at me and go feed me 
And if you've ever just stood there and looked at them and they look at you, they got that knock-kneed look that they look at you. And that's what David was doing. What was David doing? Well, what he didn't know was he was training to slay giants by protecting those sheep from lions and bears. Oh, and by the way, in slaying giants, he was training to be king of Israel. But he didn't know that. Uh, God was giving Saul a chance. You know how many chances God gave Saul? Even after God said, I'm done with you, he still gave him chance after chance after chance. Say, I want God to use me. Right? Roll up your sleeves and serve him. But but I want to do that. Do what's right in front of you. Take care of sheep. Kill bears. Kill lions when they're trying to kill your sheep. Listen to your dad. Be obedient. Oh, and be humble. Be humble. <clears throat> Winston Churchill nearly reached the height of his political power in Britain early in his career. By the age of 33, he was a cabinet minister and one of the nation's most popular speakers. But a series of events and unpopular positions caused Churchill to lose his political standing and become the subject of ridicule and rejection. By the early 1930s, he had been excluded from the seats of power. Yet Churchill's prophetical warnings about Adolf Hitler were ignored by an English public that preferred to hear comforting words of peace. And then Britain was plunged into the Second World War. Churchill was then 65 years old, eligible to retire on a government pension. Yet that was the moment that the nation turned to him. And as they would say, the rest is history. Brother Dennis, you were 48 years old when God called you to go on deputation. 48. Why not 40? Why not 35? Why not 30? Was the tribe that you went to the Widu tribe? You know what one of the reasons could have been? The Widus weren't ready for him yet. So I got to get going and do this. I got to get going and do that. This and that may not be ready for you yet. But what's right in front of you is. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about a relative you want to see saved? I believe when you get saved, you should have a burden for your relatives. I think that's one of the surest signs that you're actually saved. I think if you can make a profession of faith in Christ and not care if everybody around you goes to hell, I would check that profession out and make sure it's real. But can I say this to you? If after you get saved, you're not able to leave every, lead all of your relatives to Christ, don't die on that hill. Move on. 
win someone else's relatives to Christ. Shortly after I got saved, God gave me some fruit. And then pretty soon, all that just kind of dried up. <clears throat> God called me to go other places, do other things. And for decades, decades, literally, I didn't have a ton of interaction with family. Very little, here and there, a funeral there, a wedding there, a get-together here, a get-together there, but it was minimal. And then about five years ago, I was in my office Carol, I think you were working in the office at the time, part-time. And she came into my office. She goes, you got a phone call you need to take. I said, well, yeah, I'm busy here with this thing. She goes, you need to take this phone call. It's your nephew. I get on the phone. I get talking to him. He got saved. The last time I had seen him, it was in my, in my grandma's living room. After my grandma's funeral... We were all sitting there in this little living room in Niles, Illinois, a, a, a very close suburb of Chicago. And I remember I was kind of frustrated. I had hoped to be able to witness to some people, and it just wasn't going the way I'd hoped it would go, very little one-on-one, -on -one, anything. And so I had, I had an uncle there that, that, that I'd led to Christ years and years ago, and he's just a real gregarious, open witness guy, kind of a try-anything kind of guy. And I pulled him over, and I said, Joe, I said, you're sitting on the other side of the room. I said, I want to engage you about your testimony out loud across the room so everybody hears it. He goes, let's do it. <laughs> Got that big smile. So we're all sitting there, and there's about 25 of us crammed in this little living room. And I said, hey, Joe. I said, tell me how you got saved. I said, that's a great story. He goes, sure, Rick. And he starts giving his testimony. We're going back for the place got quiet. A couple of people walked out of the room, but it got really quiet. And my nephew was sitting there. And I never got any indication when I got back on the plane to fly back here that that had any effect on him at all. Years later, five years ago, when he called me on the phone, he said, that day I thought about what you and Uncle Joe were talking about. And then he had a friend whose life spun out of control through alcohol and divorce and other circumstances, and he was on the verge of suicide, and he came to see my nephew one day, and he was all happy, and he was all excited, and my nephew said, what happened to you? He goes, I got saved. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And he started witnessing to him. And he said, Uncle Rick, I then remembered, yeah, that's what you were telling me. And he got saved. What am I saying? I just, my, my brother just got married here in, in, in uh, September, which by the way, and, and I said it at the wedding, I, I testified to this. I said, you know, I've read in the Bible about a lot of great miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, but I said, I think this is one of the biggest ones. My brother got married. <laughs> Everybody that knows him, including him, agreed. <laughs> I congratulated him and I expressed my condolences to his bride. <laughs> and lo and behold, a whole segment of the family that I hadn't seen in a long time or talked to in a long time, certain witnessing opportunities opened up and there's communication going on still between us. 
Decades later, folks, decades later, I've got some relatives you're praying for right now that Lord willing, I'll be calling tomorrow. Decades later, you see folks, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about a spouse? I always try to take you to the book of Ruth when we talk about letting God choose your mate. I look at Ruth's faith after she lost her husband and she went with her mother-in-law back to Israel, not back to the land of Moab, to her people, to her paganism. But she rested on the God of Israel and had faith and went with Naomi. And then I think of her humility. There she is gleaning barley out in the field, the cheapest of grains. She's, she's fulfilling the scriptural admonition to wealthy people to leave the corners of their field, not glean so the poor could glean. And she's out there gleaning the cheapest of grains. I see humility. And then she takes coaching from her mother-in-law. How many gals would have said, I got this? I've been married. Don't try to tell me anything, old lady. If, you know, if I had to say one thing was wrong with this current generation coming up, it's their attitude toward those that are older. If you believe the Bible, you'll understand that somebody who's older, it's real simple, has been where you're going and can probably help you get there, if you will, ready now? Listen. And Ruth listened. Naomi coached her right through that thing until she hooked Boaz. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed guys, that these girls, they put their makeup, they don't put it in their purse anymore, they put it in a thing that looks like a tackle box. <laughs> and you think you're pursuing her, but what you don't see is that thin monofilament line going from your mouth to where she's reeling you in. <laughs> and she listened to her mother-in-law. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I've said this before. I'm just crazy enough to believe that if there isn't somebody for you and God wants you to have somebody, he'll create one now with a past history. You say, that's nuts. I, I don't know. I just I believe God's powerful enough to do that if he had to. Say, what do I do? Well, maybe the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. There's some things God has to work out. Maybe some of those things he has to work out in you. Oh, hey, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this, 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 and a spouse. Okay, great. Flip the paper over and write down what you're offering. How many boxes do you check? <laughs> Make sure you're checking enough boxes yourself. Civil and, and traffic engineers the world over have tried any number of interesting methods to get traffic to slow down. Traffic lights, police speed traps, digital speed displays, speed bumps, slow children playing signs, 
and flashing reduced speed ahead signs and a myriad of other things. One particularly interesting measure was instituted in the Dutch city of Delft. European traffic calming began as the grassroots movement in the late 1960s. Angry residents of the Dutch city of Delft turned their streets into wunervens or living yards. What were once channels for the movement of cars became shared areas outfitted with tables, benches, sandboxes, and parking bays jutting into the street. The effect was to turn the street into an obstacle course for motor vehicles and an extension of home for residents. Wunerven were officially endorsed by the Dutch government in 1976. Over the next decade, the idea spread to many other countries. Laws and regulations were changed to permit designs of the same nature in Germany, Sweden, Denmark, England, France, Japan, Israel, Austria, and Switzerland. By 1990, there were more than 3,500 shared streets in the Netherlands and Germany, 300 in Japan, 600 in Israel. The twists and turns plus brick pavement and periodic raised areas brought motorists down to walking speeds of nine miles an hour. Imagine them doing that in our country. Imagine American motorists zooming down a busy street only to encounter a sofa. <laughs> Strategically placed to manage their speeds. Have you ever looked at your life and felt like that. Felt like God was putting furniture in the middle of your speedway. Well, maybe the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about children? The Bible says in Psalm 127, children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. I think of my oldest daughter growing up, it was, it was clear to, to everybody in our family the only thing she was living for was to have children someday. She loved them. She just loved them. She ran around here always with littler kids around her all the time. And especially if a little kid was handicapped or something like that, she gravitated. And then the years with Chloe, the struggles. And I want to tell you something, I never heard the two of them, her and her husband, complain one time. I, I, I told the two of them, they're so unique in certain ways, I just told them, I said, if you hadn't found each other, you guys couldn't have successfully married anybody else in the world. Some of you have kids like that. Just pray. God will work it out. And so what did they do? They fostered and they fostered, and they fostered, and they fostered. Because they said you can't have any more kids of your own. Your chances of this happening again are too great, and they couldn't have taken care of two Chloes. One of the foster situations they had, my wife and I called them the four amigos. Four little Mexican siblings, three boys and a little girl. The girl, I think, was about four, and the oldest boy was about 11 or 12. And we'd have them over at the house. We had skating parties in my shop. 
They just loved anything you'd do for them. And they fostered those kids for the longest time. And we got to, they just, they just became part of our family. And every one of those kids got saved. The second oldest one, I think he was about 10. He, was, uh, he had been in trouble all the time at school. He was angry. You could just tell he was angry. As a lot of kids in that situation are. And, and he'd get in fights all the time in school. And then he got saved. And so he started going to school with tracks and telling kids how to get saved. And then the school called and complained. <laughs> well, if you know anything about my daughter, don't get into an argument with her. Okay? I always told her, I said, honey, I, I don't know what happened, but I think you got vaccinated with a Victrola needle. <laughs> Some of you are older know what that means. <laughs> Phonograph needle. You want me to spell it? <laughs> you know what? If the things that happened to them hadn't happened to them, those four kids wouldn't have got saved. They're friends to this day. She gets calls from them to this day. Three of them live right here in the valley. They're grown up. They're all, they're all responsible adults holding up their piece of the sky. You say, what's going on in my life? And by the way, I understand some people can't have kids. Then befriend someone else's kids and be a blessing. Because raising a kid these days for the Lord Jesus Christ, well, let's just say it takes a village. You say, what's going on? Well, maybe the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about this one, revenge? Revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. We read the precatory prayers in the Psalms where David calls for revenge. We see the, the, the sons of thunder, James and John, in, in, in the Gospels, wanting to call down fire. When somebody didn't show Jesus and the rest of the gang the hospitality that they thought they should have. You know, what I, you know what I think most people don't think about? If God let every one of us have our prayers. Now the Bible says we're supposed to pray for our enemies. One of the first things we always learn to do is to pray against our enemies, don't we? And then you just got to turn that against into a for. But stop and think if God answered every one of those I hate my enemy prayers. I think, well, yeah, that'd be great. I got a whole list of people that need to go. Did you ever stop and think that you are probably on more than one list with someone else? You know what would happen? The whole world would be torched in one week. Don't you know when I sat, when I was 15 days in the hospital with COVID on a fifth floor central tower at St. Al's, there weren't times I thought our president needs to send some big airplanes over China and carpet bomb China with hydrogen bombs. Don't look at me all pious. You've never had a thought like that in your whole life, have you? 
You know what? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. How about deliverance from a problem? That usually involves some kind of enemy. And everyone has some of these. And we think, well, if God would just deal with this person or get rid of them out of my life, it would be a game changer. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in the family. Maybe it's a neighbor. I don't know. For some, it's an ex. They can make good enemies. Doc used to say, friends come and friends go, but a, but a few red-hot enemies will last a lifetime. Dr. Jack Hiles, before he passed away, preached a profound message called, To My Enemies of 40 Years. And it was a thank you message. And he, and he listed the things that his enemies have done to benefit him, including enhance his prayer life. Let me tell you something. When you learn to pray for your enemies, you can pray for anybody. And believe me, it's easier to say than it is to do. I mean pray for them, not God, get them, get them, show them how wrong. No, Lord, bless them. Bless their family. Give them a promotion at work. Help his wife with her health problems. Help their children. Really pray for them. He talked about enhancing prayer life. Uh, he, he talked about uh, his spiritual growth as a result of those things. Those of you that are into sports, you know what rivalries do. Hey, where would the Yankees be without the Red Sox? Where would the Bruins be without the Canadians? Where would the Penguins be without the Flyers? Where would the Lakers have been without the Celtics in the Larry Bird days? Hmm? Would that have even been interesting? No, but we talk about these, these big rivalries. Well, what if the rivals didn't exist? You know, competition in business is good for consumers. Think about that one. And let me throw one last one at you now. And this is for anything I missed. The last one is unanswered prayer. How come certain of my prayers haven't got answered? The Bible says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. How is it, how is it that he hasn't answered my prayers? Well, in fact, I'll be honest with you. Most of my prayer problems with God are timing problems. He just doesn't seem to be nearly in the hurry that I am. But just in case I missed anything, I'll give you this last one. You say, well, no, it doesn't specifically cut. You prayed about it, didn't you? So it covers everything else. Do you realize that some of your prayers might be answered after you go home to be with the Lord? I look at Adoniram Judson, who suffered in Burma in prisons for his work. Went through, he, he, he widowed, he ended up with two wives widowed. He ended up married three times. Buried children on the cruel shores of Burma, what is now Myanmar. The government persecuted him literally. He translated a Bible into Burmese that he hid in a fake pillow that he laid his head on 
when they would elevate his feet at night as a way of torture and keeping him from sleeping. Do you know what happened after Adoniram Judson died? Years later, the Burmese government, in order to enhance literacy in their country, distributed a copy of his translation of the Word of God to every child in school in the entire nation of Burma. Similar things happened to Hudson Taylor in China. And here's one that we should all appreciate. Because truth be known, this man has as much to do with the form of government we have as anyone else you'll ever mention in history, and probably most of you would never guess it, but his name is William Tyndale. William Tyndale in the 1500s believed that everyone should have a copy of the Word of God. And Catholicism was supreme in England, and they didn't want people to have the Word of God in the English language, certainly not the plowman, certainly not the tinker. And Tyndale said, if I have my way, he said the plowman and the tinker will know as much about the Word of God as the priest and the scholar. And so at peril of his life, he translated the Word of God into English. And then, for the first time that anyone had ever done this, translated and then start to distribute it. And boy, he was on the government's hit list. Well, they finally caught him. They finally caught him in 1536 at the age of 42. And they had him burnt at the stake. And the way they would do is they'd tie him to the stake in front of a full audience. It was a spectator sport, if you will. Tied his hands behind his back, and they would, they would generally choke him to death and then burn him. It was considered a mercy. If they didn't do that, then it was much more excruciatingly painful dying from that heat. But before they choked him to death, here's what he, he cried out. He said, Oh Lord, oh Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Those were his last words. I believe it was answered twofold. Three years later, in 1539, Henry VIII allowed a copy of the Bible in English in every parish church in England. That was just the start. And about 80 years later, in 1611, King James I of England and King James, he was also King James VI of Scotland, He sanctioned the translating of the Word of God that, that probably every one of you has in your lap here this morning. King James 1611 Bible. Do you realize that more than any other one scholar, including all the scholars that work together on it, Tyndale's translation had more influence on that Bible than any other one man? And the king authorized the translating of it into the King James Bible. 
And the rest is history, folks. Oh, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. If you Google up William Tyndale and you, and you, you hit the question that says, how did Tyndale change the world? I read, Tyndale made people equal before God's word, and so the door was open to make them equal politically under a divine king as well. When that formula proved unsustainable, we got the Civil War and the eventual execution of Charles I in 1649, the birth of Anglo-democracy. All of which can be traced to Tyndale's influence. The idea of any form of self-rule, which we enjoy in spades in this country, started with that man unintentionally wanting to make God's people Equal the priesthood of believers where everybody could have the word of God and it not be locked up in a monastery somewhere. You know when he got his prayers answered? After he was dead. You say, what was the problem? The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. As we close this morning, the invitation is very simple. I want us to bow our heads to close our eyes. Because I'm fair in saying we all go through this. We all go through this. Why isn't God doing something about this now? Why doesn't God see the urgency of the situation? Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Here's the invitation this morning. Lord, by your grace, I'm not going to get impatient. Lord, by your grace, I'm not going to do what Abraham did in the very next chapter 16 and produce an Ishmael. I'm going to wait till chapter 21, Lord. I'm going to wait for Isaac. I'm going to wait for Isaac. I'm going to let you work. Because the iniquity of the Amorites may not yet be full. Would you bring that to the Lord this morning? If some are coming to pray, would you take that to the Lord this morning? Would you get that monkey off your proverbial back? And just let God be God. Just let God be God. Folks, we all got stuff in our lives that we wrestle with and we contort with. And we wish God would just get in his fire truck and turn on all the sirens and rush to our rescue. But all we see is our little slim piece of the pie. And God may be working out some wonderful things to his glory and our benefit. But we grab Hagar. And then we live with Ishmael.
And we don't wait for Isaac. We don't wait for the promise. We get impatient. It's a, it's a normal human reaction. Israel had to be 400 years in bondage because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. It was something none of those Jews could see. God was preparing a land for them, but it wasn't ready yet. Heavenly Father, bless your word to our hearts. Lord, I know there's so much more that could have been said and said much better than it was said. Father, I believe this is a great truth and I believe it affects all of us and help us, Lord, to grasp it and help us in the end to just get our hands off the reins and let you be God. Father, in, in this world, the normal course of things is we, we grow up, we leave the house and we quit calling our, our father daddy anymore, but you said in Galatians 4, verse 6, that we say, Abba, Father. We say, we say, Daddy. We say, Papa. It's the opposite in the spiritual realm, Father. As we get more mature and older in you, we become more dependent, not independent. We cling harder to you than ever. And it's so counterintuitive, Lord. Help us this morning. Help us to let God be God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and take our hymnals. And number 385, trust and obey, number 385. Oh, no. 
trust and obey on the last. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the close us in a word of prayer. Come on up here, brother, would you please? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Father, for the goodness of God and all the things that you've given us, Lord. And if we know in this spectrum of time, Father, sometimes we just don't understand why things do happen. But Father, not only trust you, believe in you, and God, just accept where we are in life to do the things that you've called us to do. And we look forward to being with you in the future. But until then, Father, may we accept what we have and be about God's business, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.